This is Archive Atlanta, episode 69, Margaret Mitchell. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. So before we get into this week's story, I have a few public service announcements um, about events that are coming up in Atlanta, so bear with me for a few minutes. Last week, I had the pleasure of meeting Hannah, who works for the United Way of Greater Atlanta. Not only did I get to learn about the organization and the work that they do to improve child well-being, but she let me flip through tons of old marketing materials spanning the last century. And if there is nothing I love more, it's being left in a room with old paper. For the last 40 years, United Way was located at 100 Edgewood Avenue, a building built in 1965 and given to the organization by Robert Woodruff. So to raise money for their mission, they're allowing the general public to rappel down 17 stories of this former home. There are only 70 spots available. Um, So I put a link in the show notes for any crazy people that want to do this. I do not like heights, but if you do go up there, please take a picture for me. Second, my favorite event of the entire year is coming in March, and that is Phoenix Flies. Three weeks of free tours and history events all over the city, and yours truly will be hosting two Sweet Auburn tours. If you want to join me, learn more about my favorite street for free. These will be on both on Saturday, on March 7th and March 21st, both at 11 a.m. And last, I was a guest on another Atlanta-based podcast called Atlanta Born and Brand, um, which highlights brands and small businesses and entrepreneurs. So I am very honored to be included among this list of really amazing guests that they had. And this experience was so much fun. So if you want to hear me talk about how I got to this and why I do this podcast, I will also have a link in the show notes. All right, let's get into this week's story. In my introduction episode, I mentioned that as I drove from New York to Atlanta, I lamented about how the South was all civil war and gone with the wind. Of course, I was wrong. And 68 episodes in, I have yet to cover either topic. But the time is quickly approaching. So what better way to start than with an episode about the woman behind the famous novel? This week, it's all about Margaret Mitchell. From her family, childhood, marriages, health struggles, and how she wrote arguably the most famous book in the world. What I love most about this episode is how her life, and she's really kind of considered the daughter of Atlanta, intersects and interacts with almost every single iconic place in the city. I probably mentioned at least seven of a previous episodes because she's touched all these places. Margaret Munnerlyn Mitchell was born in Atlanta on November 8th, 1900. Her family went back far, four generations actually, and participated in a lot of major historical U.S. events. Her great-great-great paternal grandfather Thomas fought in the American Revolution, his son in the War of 1812, and it was her great-grandfather Isaac who rode into Marthasville to preach on the Methodist circuit. Here he would stay and watch Marthasville become Atlanta in 1847. Her grandfather Russell fought for the Confederacy during the Civil War and actually survived bullet wounds to the head. He would have 12 children. One of them, Eugene Mitchell, would become her father. Not to be outdone, her mother's Irish Catholic family came to America with her great-grandfather and eventually settled on a plantation near Jonesboro. They had seven daughters, one being Margaret's grandmother, Annie Fitzgerald. Annie marries another Irish immigrant, John Stevens, and together they settle in Atlanta. They are very active in the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, which I talked about in the Church's episode, Um, and the pair would amass a pretty large real estate holding, and they had a part in helping to start the trolley car system in the city. Of their 12 children, Mary Isabel, who they called Maybelle, would be Margaret's mother. 
Eugene Mitchell grew up in Atlanta, attending private school, and in 1881, he would go on to undergrad at the University of Georgia. To appease his father, he would stay in Athens to attend law school, finishing up at the age of 19. Back in Atlanta in 1886, he opens his own law firm with his cousin. Maybell's family built a home just blocks away from Eugene's, and so we kind of assume maybe the two knew each other as children, but you also have to remember that in this time, Atlanta's about a mile around, so I always imagine that everybody kind of knew everybody anyway. Eugene and Maybell would marry in 1892, and this was a society marriage, and it combined two really important and prominent political families. Their firstborn child, a boy, would die in infancy, but they would have another boy shortly thereafter. His name was Alexander Stevens Mitchell, named for Alexander Stevens, former vice president of the Confederacy, but they called him Stevens for short. Margaret was born four years later in the home of her grandmother on Kane Street. She'd spend the first five years of her life in that home, sitting on her grandmother's lap, hearing stories about Sherman's march into Atlanta and the destruction the Civil War brought. Grandmother Stevens owned almost a dozen houses in the Jackson Hill neighborhood, and the Mitchells moved into one of them a few years before Margaret's father purchased a huge, rambling Victorian on Jackson Street. It was in this house that, as a child, her dress caught fire because she was sitting too close to an open flame fireplace. And we mention this because if you read biographies about her, um, this is a huge moment in her life. Her mother ends up freaking out, putting away all of her dresses, and then dressing her like a boy from the majority of her childhood. And she was very much described as a tomboy. She liked to play rough, run, play baseball, ride horses, and she loved animals. In 1906, Margaret lives through the deadly four-day Atlanta race riot, which I covered in episode 19, and she has memories of neighbors arming themselves with guns because they were fearing unfounded fears of black rioters. It was because of the race riot that her family moved to a home on Peachtree Street. But it was also because wealthy, white, elite Atlanta were all moving there too. Jackson Hill was in the fourth ward and it was very much a racially and economically mixed area. At this point, her father Eugene is president of the Atlanta Bar Association and he's on the board of education. So I talked about the wards in their own episode, but the eighth ward was the newest up and coming part of town and the family purchased a large, beautiful, white columned mansion on Peachtree Street. This home is gone now, but um, right at the merging of Peachtree and West Peachtree, there's an office building there, and there's a uh, historical marker in front so you can tell where it was. Margaret Mitchell completes school at the 10th Street School, and then she transfers to Woodbury, which was a private school, um, also on Peachtree. And then in 1914, she is sent to Washington Seminary. At that point in time, Washington Seminary was just up the street, so she could walk there, and it was the second best place for wealthy Atlantans to send their children. So I learned this doing this research, but the like super upper crust would send their kids to boarding school outside of Georgia, usually in the north, but the second best option was for young girls to go to Washington. And yes, I do have one of their yearbooks, and it's sadly not the one with Margaret Mitchell. In this new house, she would begin writing and performing plays with the neighborhood kids. Her earliest documented writings are from 1912, and it's at this school that she's part of the drama club and literary societies. In 1917, she published her first two short stories. 1917 is also the year of Atlanta's Great Fire, um, so that took out all 11 homes that her grandmother owned in Jackson Hill, um, and this was a huge source of income, so this was a really tough time for the Stevens family. 
Margaret actually helps the wounded and the homeless at a refuge center inside the municipal auditorium. So if you've ever seen Gone with the Wind, she's definitely used that experience for the scene um, with the wounded in after the Battle of Atlanta. 1917 was also the year that United States joined World War I, and Atlanta's young men were leaving for war, but they were also coming through the city in places like Camp Gordon and Fort McPherson. And so these young society ladies were very much encouraged to go to dances and kind of cheer up the soldiers and keep them in good spirits. It's at a dance that summer that Margaret meets a young soldier from Harvard named Clifford Henry. Her and Clifford have a whirlwind romance, and they're engaged shortly thereafter. He leaves to fight overseas, and the following year, the city is hit by the Spanish flu, and Margaret's mother, Maybell, falls very ill. Amidst all this turmoil, Margaret decides to apply to attend school at Smith College in Massachusetts. And it's on this application that she chooses the name Peggy. So no one in her family had ever called her this. She just decided Like, I guess it was time for a new persona, so to speak. And I've read that she took the inspiration from the mythical character of Pegasus. Her time at Smith would be short. Not only did she not really do well in school, but her mother's health was really getting worse. And once she learns that her fiancé, Henry, has been killed in combat, that just kind of seals the deal. Her mother dies in January of 1919, and she officially decides to leave school to come back and take care of the house and take care of her father. Ironically, this is something her mother specifically asked her not to do in the letter that she wrote while on her deathbed. So she returns home and her family still refuses to call her Peggy. But her servants oblige and they start calling her Miss Peggy. Now in Atlanta, her father and mostly her grandmother are pressuring her to debut. And debuting is this formal introduction of a young girl into society. So in January of 1920, she was accepted by the debutante club. Shortly after this, she goes out horseback riding, suffers a fall, and further injures her already bad ankle. Recuperation is really tough and her spirits are low. Peggy has suffered from depression before, but this was a really tough time. So in order to lift her spirits, a friend invites her to a Halloween ball at the Eastlake Country Club, which I talked about in episode 45. It was there that she met Barian Kennard Upshaw. Towering over her tiny little four foot eleven self, he was six foot two and a football player at the University of Georgia. His nickname was Red. Although they met in 1920, they didn't immediately start dating. It was later in 1922 that they would reconnect as members of the Peachtree Yacht Club. No one approved of this, so society friends were kind of confused that she liked him. Her dad was not really sold on his pedigree or his ability to provide. But regardless, they would marry in September of 1922. The wedding takes place in the parlor of their Peachtree Street home, and standing alongside Red Upshaw was his best man, John Marsh. The complicated thing was that John also loved Peggy. And he had made that fairly clear before she chose to wed Upshaw. And each man knew it too. So the story is that they would actually flip a coin to see who could take her out on which night. At her father's insistence, they moved into the family home and he was struggling to find a job. People say that he was a part-time bootlegger, but he couldn't really find legitimate work. Sadly, Red and Peggy's marriage um, suffered greatly. Within the year, he had moved out and they were legally divorced. She would go on to find a job writing for the Atlanta Journal magazine. Unsurprisingly, she would rekindle her connection to John Marsh and they would marry in 1925. 
John was a copy editor for the Associated Press in Atlanta, and he was on the staff of the Atlanta Journal, Atlanta Georgian, and the Lexington Leader. Before World War I, he was actually an English teacher, but at the time of their wedding, he was working in PR for the Georgia Railway and Power Company, today Georgia Power. The couple chose not to have kids, and it was John, really, that convinced Peggy she could be a writer. John himself dreamed of becoming an author, but he conceded he was much better as an editor. And this is kind of funny, because he would go on to be the only editor that Gone with the Wind manuscript ever saw. At the onset of their marriage, Peggy Marsh was dealing with recurring health issues, mainly physical. So from the horse riding accidents of her youth, her ankle seemed to have never healed correctly. And by 1926, it said that she couldn't walk without crutches. She leaves her job at the journal and confines herself at home. Home is the infamous dump, as Peggy named it, which still stands along Petrie Street today. I think, uh... I think she definitely learned from the first experience living at her father's home when she was married to Red that they weren't going to do that. So her and John rented the smallest unit inside a mansion that was built in 1899. Ironically, the original builder of the house was a publisher and two of his daughters became writers. So maybe there's just like a spirit in the walls. I don't know. Um, But because she couldn't get out, Peggy sat at home and read books. John would bring her a book from the Carnegie Library in episode 48, almost every evening. And the story is that one night he comes home with a giant stack of blank paper, puts it down in front of her, and exclaims that she's read every single book in the library, and she should just write her own. The rest, as they say, is history. Gone with the Wind would be written over a nine-year period, from 1926 to 1935. In the mid-30s, Book Scout Harold Latham was traveling the South, looking for the next big thing. And he calls his editor friend in New York, who suggested checking in with Peggy Mitchell Marsh in Atlanta. But she warns him, no one's ever read this book. Peggy was an odd bird. She was very secretive, very protective of her life and her work. But she had been mentioning the book to the editor over the phone. Only she and John had seen this writing. And the novel, this just cracked me up, the novel was stuffed in dozens of manila envelopes all around the apartment. Like she couldn't even find chapter one. She had to mail it to him later. But she collects all of the loose papers, puts them in order, and she delivers it to the book scout in the lobby of the Georgian Terrace, which still stands today across from the Fox Theater. And this is where he sits to read it. Peggy Marsh receives a $500 signing bonus, which would be almost $1,000 today, with the intent of selling her book at $2.50. The publisher was horrified when they received the novel, realizing it was over 1,000 pages. This meant the book had to be sold for $3. These amounts do not sound like much in 2020, but you have to remember that 1935 is the middle of the Great Depression. Asking someone to spend $3 on a book is almost unthinkable. They printed limited copies because they didn't want to get stuck with boxes of unsold books. And now we can look back and laugh at that. Um, But, you know, they didn't know. So I don't want to get into the weeds about the book or the movie because those are going to be a future episode one day. But within three weeks, it had sold 178,000 copies. They expected about 1 million sales by the end of the year. So they gave Peggy a $5,000 bonus in anticipation. $43,000 came a few months later, and almost $100,000 months after that. Again, this is the depression. These are like millionaire sums. The instant celebrity was very difficult for Peggy. She insisted on remaining in the same apartment, not adjusting their lifestyle in any way. Uh, She still suffered really severe health issues, and she even was temporarily blind, caused by the eye strain from the final edits. Once the movie rights were purchased, her life took on a life of its own. 
Gone with the Wind would earn Margaret the Pulitzer Prize, but also bring with it some struggle, mainly in the form of lawsuits. At her apartment, she was inundated with phone calls, mail, and visitors, and she would secretly rent a room in the neighboring Northwood Hotel, which the building still stands today, um, and she would just go there and sleep sometimes. She just didn't have a phone, and she just rested. It wasn't until 1938 that the book finally left the bestseller list. So at this point, she sold 2 million copies in the U.S. and over a million abroad. The only thing she allowed herself to do was redecorate the apartment. But John Marsh is still working at Georgia Power. The filming of Gone with the Wind wraps up in June of 1939 and a December premiere in Atlanta is set. At this point in Peggy's life, her husband's health was in terrible condition, and he was not working. They had finally moved out of the Peachtree Street apartment and into one inside the Della Manta apartments along Piedmont Avenue. Shockingly, this building is also still here. The stress of media attention, the premiere, and her husband's death sent her into a very depressive state that she was no stranger to. When World War I breaks out, it helps distract the public from movies and books, and it kind of allows Peggy to fade into the background a little and focus her attention on helping U.S. soldiers moving in and out of Atlanta. I'm sure that this ties back into her experience in World War One, and then, you know, meeting her fiancé there, but there are so many stories about, I mean, she had soldiers living with them, and she would correspond with them, and she just did as much as she could for them. In 1945, she tells her friend that she feels she is certain she's going to die in a car crash. Three years later, she decides to revise her will, and she instructs John and her loved ones to burn all of her documents, her letters, and even her manuscripts. In 1949, she and John are headed to the Peachtree Arts Theater at the corner of 13th and Peachtree to see Canterbury Tales. She parks the car across the street, gets out to help her ailing husband, And when they get halfway across the road, she looks up to see a car speeding towards them with no intention of stopping. In a panic, she breaks away from her husband and runs towards the curb. So the driver, once he realizes there are people on the road, he jerks the wheel to avoid hitting John, but instead hits Peggy and drags her several feet under the wheels of the car. She is rushed to Grady Hospital which also has its own episode, where she is treated for a fractured skull and pelvis and massive internal injuries. For five days, she fights for her life with letters and calls from around the world and around Atlanta. President Truman even called Grady to wish her well. The man who hit her, Hugh Gravitt, was an off-duty taxi driver who decided to drink four beers before heading down Peachtree that day. He was arrested for drunk driving and a pending homicide case. Tragically, on the fifth day from the accident, Peggy Mitchell March succumbed to her injuries and passed away. She was 48 years old. Her funeral was so well attended that tickets had to be given out to keep the crowds controlled. Her funeral procession followed the same path as the Gone with the Wind premiere. John, a few days later, asked her assistant and friend to help him burn all of her letters and papers, fulfilling his promise to his wife. She was buried with her family at Oakland Cemetery, and when John passed later, he was buried there as well. It's arguably one of the most famous and well-visited graves at Oakland. So there you have it, the story of Margaret Mitchell. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen. And if you'd like some bonus content, head over to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Archive Atlanta. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll see you next week.